So, I know somebody who definitely saw the new Top Gun movie. Hey, listen. You know how I yes. can tell? <laughs> how can you tell, Connor? Uh, apparently, someone is a big fan of the um, Miles Teller Navy Aviator mustache. Uh, yes. This will be great for an audio medium, but for the listeners at home, I shaved my beard off because it was just too darn hot in Florida, and I decided to keep just the Top Gun mustache. Um, yeah, yeah. It looks I've good. coined it Rooster Stash Summer because this is going to be with me all summer, and then I'm going to grow the beard back when it cools off. <laughs> no, it's good. It looks good. Um, Thank you? <laughs> but it's it's fitting because the character we're, we're the that we've been discussing, Isaac Bell, is he's described as having having like a, a bristly mustache, so I imagine it kind of similar to your mustache. Yeah, but blonde, for sure. I think his is a little bit bigger, I would I would imagine. Yeah, I imagine it's like a... What That's is it, like in a, a... a time period that mustaches were much more acceptable and didn't uh, get you judged as much as they do nowadays. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's kind of funny in, in a lot of the Western movies I see there's these uh you know cowboys and outlaws and lawmen and their hair gets like really long and greasy and everything but they seem to take pains to make sure their mustache is like pristine, pristine. and i guess yeah. that's like a small thing you know it's like you, you take care of what you can i mean i know some some people now that are like that that take care of their beard much more than the rest of their entire look well, let's introduce the podcast first. This is uh oh, yeah. this is we should, probably, we should probably do that. Welcome to Top Top Gun. Top <laughs> No, uh, <laughs> this is Dadlit. We are a couple of schmoes that discuss books marketed towards uh middle-aged white men mostly. Um, kind of boomer boomer lit. Yeah, boomer it doesn't have as much as a sting as Dadlit, I don't think. But yeah, uh we we discussed the the four Cs. Clancy, Custler, uh, Child, and uh, Crichton. Although we haven't done a Crichton yet, I can't. But wait I am. To do I am one host, one half of the host. I. I'm. I am uh, Chris Ludwig, and I'm Connor. I'm your other co-host. Oh, <laughs> and this is part two of our discussion of the Chase by Clive Custler, one of the big C's of Dad Lit. In our first episode, we talked about the plot. Mm-hmm. Half Western, half detective story. It's part of a, a series I'm very keen on. And for those that didn't listen to the, the first half, Connor, what did you think of your first foray into the Isaac Bell series? Oh, I absolutely loved it. I mean, I can see if if each book is as good as this one, then I could see it becoming you know one of my favorite series. And I'm not really big on book series. There's like very few series I get hooked into, but... I, I am, um, you know, eager to read more of this series. I really enjoyed it. I love the Western yeah, it only gets detective it, it only gets better thing. from here. Yeah, Western noir is, is just like, that. Get, that's everything I really want, you know, and like. You know, if you can, if you can throw in some horror and some UFOs into that mix, then, like, well, I'm in heaven. No, we, never get, we never get that. There's that other author that I mentioned that has UFOs in his books that I might read, but... Yeah, Stephen uh, Kuntz. I want to read yeah, that book, Yeah, we got to add saucers. some more Cs onto the... F- the four C's of I might of go Dad to the Lit. library tomorrow and get that book, actually. <laughs> uh, let me know. I'm, I'm down to read it. It sounds wild. But, well, um, yeah. yeah, this series is good. And I think it's interesting that you point out that you're not a big fan of series because it's something that I pointed out to you the other day that it's interesting that uh, you kind of jump around your uh, from author to author of things I've never even heard of in this genre and others. 
uh, and you have a, a kind of a jack of all trades knowledge of of this kind of literature. Whereas I have buckled down and delved into series. I've read like all of well, not all, but a lot of the Clive Custler books. Certainly, all of the Isaac Bell books. Close to all, uh, close to half of the Dirk Pitt books. I've read much of Michael Crichton. I've read almost all of the Lee Child Reacher books, mm-hmm. and I've read like even some old stuff like uh, Ian Fleming's James Bond books. I've read all of those. So yeah. I'm I'm clearly the the series guy, and and you're the the exploratory reader. If I'm a uh, if I'm a general practitioner, then you are a surgeon. Oh, sure. I do <laughs> but, cut in. Should we do cast off before we talk about the Pinkertons? Um, I would ask the audience, but they can't tell us. Yeah. Um. Yeah. Let's uh. Let's go ahead and cast off. Yeah. Let's do that. So, this was a little difficult for me because. Hypothetically, you'd be like, this isn't the first time we've, do, we've done this, but you're casting like franchise characters. Like this, char- this actor is going to carry on into they other ones. Really need to be able to carry the role. And I took like, that into account. Yeah. Okay. So let's start off with Isaac Bell. He's the protagonist. I, I'll give a physical description of how he appears in the book. Doesn't necessarily need to be cast that way, but he's described as tall, over six feet um, tall, lean, blonde, mustachioed. He has violet eyes which are frequently referenced like people are kind of taken in by his violet eyes he's described also as having like a no-nonsense look usually wears a white linen suit wide brim hat leather boots um who did you have for this an actor that i've recently become very fond of after seeing uh the northman alex skarsgård alexander skarsgård all you have to do and i urge you to do this both listener and you type in alexander skarsgård mustache and you'll see his appearances at public functions, and he looks very good for this role. That's funny you mentioned him because I thought about him for another role. I did see him in The North Man. I thought he was. I thought that was an okay movie. It's, I, it is. It is just. An, it is just an okay movie. But I liked his performance in it, and I've liked him in other things that I've seen him in. And he he's quickly becoming one of my favorite leading men. Okay, I I like him for that. I think he. He would do a good job. For me, he's a he's a little too good looking. Not that not that Isaac Bell is lacking in looks. They do but, talk about him being a little more rugged. So yeah, and not that my choice is very rugged. But I said Evan Peters. Evan Peters is an American horror story. He plays Quicksilver in the X Men movies. Um, I think I know who you're talking about. He. I just thought that he has enough character and kind of versatility to him and has some sex appeal. Oh, Ralph Boner himself. <laughs> um, yeah, this is an interesting pick. I thought that he... Especially now that he's getting older. He matches the time as well, or the, the age as well, because I think Bell's in his, like, 30s. Everyone's young in this in this time period, because you had yeah. to be. You got started earlier in life. That's I try to take that into consideration as well. That, um, But I think uh, he has a certain a versatility to him that could work and i'd like to see him attempt that role he's kind of humorous i think he could do it and yeah and isaac has a sense of humor about him yeah uh I, th- I think that could work okay next we have jacob cromwell he is the butcher bandit he's the villain in it he's described as also being kind of suave and debonair um, but, uh red-headed um and also thin yeah yeah who did you have uh docker montgomery I have no idea who that is. You, have you seen Stranger Things season three? He plays Billy, the like mean bully kind of like 
bad boy. But I, I think he, I, I was originally pinning him for the role of Belle, and then uh, I swapped him out for the villain because I don't I didn't think he had the charming quality that he needed for Belle. Okay, I know who this is. Yeah, he played. He's the blonde hair, the uh, the the bad boy who's really like he's a bully. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah, um, that's. Good. I think he could. I think make his hair a little red. I think he'd be perfect. Okay, I, I, I also took into account a really weird rhetoric for that was could this person do drag? That's <laughs> reasonable. So I was looking at different people and be like, no, that chin's too pronounced. No, they're too too uh, rutted. Like their face is ruddy. Like I can't. Uh, well, that kind of so I that's a that's actually a fair point because it, or it could be comedic in a in a film visually to see because I thought. Alexander Scar I considered Alexander Skarsgård for Jacob Cromwell and he's like a pretty tall and beefy guy so it would be kind of funny to see him actually trying to like to be a woman yeah. and it just being completely you know just not passable but going going with it anyways but for for Cromwell all right this is a little different because I thought they have to be like there has to be something sinister about them mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and I thought Zachary Quinto Ooh, yeah he might be a, a little outside the age range but but you could do that it. matters too you much do it. yeah yeah but I did consider Alexander Skarsgård, but I wanted someone a little yeah, Zachary more... Zachary Quinto does a great job of it. He, um, you've seen Heroes, right? No, I've seen him in... He's um, a very, oh. very evil villain in Heroes, and he does a really good job of being absolutely diabolical. I think I saw him in American Horror Story. If he's also that. Spock. Yes, that's yeah. cool. Okay, coming up next, Margaret Cromwell slash Rose Manteca, the sister slash accomplice to Jacob the Butcher Bandit. I'll go first on yeah, this who one. Yeah, you Okay, Christina Hendricks. I considered that. Yeah, uh, I've, she's been in uh, Firefly as like a, a femme fatale in a western setting, and she yeah. works very well in that in that regard. I could I could see. I um I considered that, but I also considered that um, she's getting a little older now, and to pair her with um, Docker Montgomery, um, I picked Rose Leslie. She plays the redheaded wildling chick in Game of Thrones. Egret. That that works, yeah. Yeah, that would work um, well. She would work really well at being both charming, a little sinister, but also like playful and like kind of fitting into that like spy femme fatale yeah. category. Yeah, that would that I could see that. Okay, up next is Marion Morgan. She's secretary to Jacob Cromwell. She is the love interest of Belle. They end up getting married in it. Um, supposed are, to be drop dead gorgeous. Supposed to be very proper, modest. Yeah, yeah. Who you got? Okay, this is not age appropriate. I don't I mean who who. As I, long as it pairs with your Isaac Bell. Okay, <laughs> well it does. But it, Sarah Paulson from American Horror Story. Yeah, you're getting really in on the American <laughs> Horror Story actors. Well, just because she, I forget. I've seen her in things where she kind of plays a somewhat like for lack of a better term, like, stuck-up person. Like, she can play, like, a very kind of reserved person. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I was thinking that a character who, like, who can do that, but then they can break into, like, a more, like, sympathetic person. But I ended up going with someone else. Okay. Deborah Ann Wall. Who's that? She is in Punisher. And she's in, well, actually, she's in uh, Punisher and Daredevil. She played the cop? She is the, like, I believe she's an attorney in it. Oh, she's the, okay. She's, like, the... One, I think she's the female lead in, in Daredevil. Oh, um, yes, yes. Uh, she plays the paralegal. Yes, that's right. Uh, that's a really good job. I'm, I'm, it's interesting that you went with a blonde. And well, she has, I believe she has red hair in real life. Um, well, it's in Daredevil, she has. Yeah, but yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's interesting. That I went with Blake Lively. Blake, uh, I should know that. You should. You actually, the minute you look it up, you're gonna, uh, you're gonna know who she is. 
Okay. Yeah, I think she would do a good job just seeing the roles that she's played before. Um, and I think she would pair well with Skarsgård. How about Amber Heard? <laughs> I don't think she's going to be cast in a whole lot anymore. No. But anyways. All right. Moving forward. Up next, I had the two um, detectives, the Denver detectives. They're like the supporting detectives. Arthur Curtis. He's the short, stout and investigator. Glenn Irvine. The, and the, Glenn Irvine. Your favorite. So, uh, and I did not cast them. So yeah, this is all you. So Curtis dies in the San Francisco earthquake. We don't actually see his death scene. He, we just he learned just goes missing completely. Yeah. yeah. And then I think Horace Bronson says like, oh, he died. But, um, okay. For that, I had Jesse Plemons who is in, um, he's been in a lot of stuff, but he was recently in uh, power of the dog. He was one of the main characters. Yeah, yeah, we've talked about it. We've cast him before. I, probably. Yeah, yeah. 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 My only concern about that is that like, he's kind of a, a, a featured leading man nowadays. now. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so that's who I had for Arthur Curtis. And then for Glenn Irvine, I had this actor, Cody Smith-McPhee, who is also... Man, your polls are so out, like, just all over the place. I don't know who this is He's either. also in Power of the Dog, that okay. Netflix movie with Benedict Cumberbatch. And he is, he's younger. He's tall, very, very lean. Like, he could play Ichabod Crane, like, perfectly. Um, I just think he has that good... The good qual- the Ichabod Crane quality that I want in that character. That'd be good for an old lusty detective, yeah. Okay, so let's go on to Horace Bronson. Yeah! Who is the San Francisco detective. He's sort of like a managing detective, and he's described as being kind of like muscular. and Yeah, very not well-defined as a character. So I picked a very not well-defined person aside from the fact that he has chilling blue eyes. Neil McDonough. I've cast him before as well. He's a, he's the epitome of B actor. He's the epitome of you've seen this guy in everything. Um, okay, he's a bit older, but that's I, yeah. That, that is a good. I like that. Yeah, uh, he's been in everything. Yeah, he's um, in um, Band of Brothers. He played one of the officers yeah. in it. And he's in the CW Hero versus like one of the villains, Damian Dark or something like that. Whatever. Yeah, he has those um, striking eyes. But other than that, he does have the forest of blonde hair that fits the character, and he's broad. A younger version of him might be able to play Isaac Bell. Like yes, the eyes. I could I could see that very well. He has an intel like he just kind of has like an intelligence and kind of like strange quality. You're gonna make me want to cast this in the '90s now. Okay, I'm gonna do that on my free time now. Thank you for that. Thank you for putting that in my head. For Horace Bronson, I had two choices. (laughs) Okay, Channing Tatum. Oh my god, (laughs) or Josh Hartnett. I like Josh Hartnett. I, like, I, I almost cast Josh Hartnett in another role, so that works. Okay. All right. Now, actually, I, I think I almost cast him in that role. In I think he was as Horace Bronson. Horace Bronson. I think he was looking at him. Yeah, he's he's good. I like him with a tiny little like pencil thin mustache. Yeah, yeah, kinda, yeah. Okay. Next up on the list, uh, Red Kelly, who is the mobster who uh, Cromwell hires to go and kill Bell, and he's described. He's famously he's like an ex boxer. Um, turned mobster. For this one, I picked Conor McGregor. I would love to see him do that. And he, because there's a pretty intense fight scene between him and Bell, and like he like kind of chokes out Bell, and it seems like a very like painful fight that they have. But I thought Conor McGregor could do it. Um, hold on, I'm looking up this actor because I completely forgot his name. Um, it's okay. No, his name's uh, Christopher Hivju. This guy. Okay, this is another guy from uh, Game, well, of Game, Game of Thrones. But he's yeah. also recently in The Witcher um, uh, and a couple. He was in one of the Fast Five movies as a, a henchman. Uh, he's a uh, the guy who played Tormund in Game of Thrones. Everyone would recognize him. 
Um, I think he'd play a great Red Kelly, and he's red, so it works. Okay, that's good. Um, yeah, he does. That would be. I like that too. Okay, this is the last one I have. If we cast it in the '90s, Red Kelly's Peter Boyle. Peter Boyle in the yeah. '90s. Is Peter Boyle, old. mob boss. But like, he has to be able to to like box. He and, can. Like, but I old think... boxer is definitely a vibe for those old times. Okay. All right. Um, Joseph Van Dorn, founder of the Van Dorn Detective Agency. I think this is. This would be. I'm. I'm very curious to see who you would have. Nick Offerman. Oh, that's cool. Make that's... Nick Offerman bald. Make him the the head of a detective agent. I can see it. Is he a bald character? Uh, yeah, Van Dorn's bald. Okay. Um, it doesn't right. have to be. You can cast him as someone who's not bald. I had three different picks, and I'll put them in order of how much I like them. Starting with, I'm not so hot about. I was starting at the bottom, going up. Okay, ahead. Billy Bob Thornton. He's not the right build, but I like it. Um, if it was if this was an animated feature and you were just voicing it, that's great. Because um, um, uh, Van Dorn is burly. Mm-hmm. Um, he's broad. He's a little heavyweight, um, and he's bald. That's like generally the way he's described. Yeah, but that doesn't. The look isn't there. But I, I. But I could see him as a head of a detective agency. D- yeah. Yeah. Okay. He was good. Although, in... although we've seen actors do ridiculous body transformations, like like um, Colin Farrell and uh, Batman. Yeah. Batman. So maybe Billy Bob. Who knows? Put um, him in a fat suit in uh, in the TV show 1883, which is a prequel to Yellowstone. And we were talking about this earlier. Billy Bob Thornton plays this sheriff who's like freaking insane like he 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 kills a lot of people in one very violent scene and i'm like shouldn't do that but i'm not that van dorn is is like that but i thought that he could bring like an authority and a sort of menace to the character of van dorn which doesn't seem like the, what the character how the character is written in the book but i also don't think it needs to it, it van dorn's interesting and we can talk about this too um the parallels between van dorn and um another Custler character um sandecker colonel yeah. sandecker yeah yeah so sandecker um, is described kind of similarly to this character in like personality and um, appearance. I think they're both uh, kind of like redheaded, but um, Sandecker generally has like a beard and smokes a cigar. And, yeah, um, is kind of barrel chested and jogs. We've we've established that before. And then this character is a little bit more out of shape, but is Still like tough. He's tough looking, but he's generally really nice. Like he's a very jove, like jove jolly person um van dorn unless unless one of his like agents gets killed or something is going poorly then he has a very like angry side to him so billy bob thornton doesn't look like him might be able to do something interesting up next i had nick cage no Vito. Oh. <laughs> all right here's the one i like the most and he doesn't look give like me him. nick cage as the butcher bandit though any day just him putting on weird outfits and playing weird characters um <laughs> I would. I mean, I'll watch anything. Nick Cage and drag committing a bank robbery. There's. It probably has been done in a movie before. Honestly, he's so like. I was okay. So uh, speaking of things that we brought up earlier that we're going to bring up at the tail end of things. um, So that Top Gun movie came out, right? Yeah. Um, Are you aware that there was when Top Gun the original movie came out? There is almost a carbon copy of that about helicopters. I have seen this the Nicolas Cage attack helicopter movie. Yeah, with Tommy Lee Jones. Yeah. It's ridiculous. It is. I need. We need to. Re- I, we should review that. Yeah. Um, uh. <laughs> so, 
there there could be a whole podcast about like knockoff movies because yeah. there's a lot or, like or Ita- dadlet movies yeah italian there, there's dad this, film well there's a i think his name is bruno matai is this italian filmmaker who makes like all made all these knockoff movies of like jaws and terminator and stuff um okay all right here's my pick for van dorn though i think this would work good is this this uh, is your number one this number is the one. top of the list you might not know this guy ralph innocent he was in the the movie the witch and he was in the TV show Chernobyl, he is this tall, very kind of like strange, deep voice guy who has just this, uh, I don't know, a very like dignified but intense quality to him. Kind of like a big, long oh, yeah. face. He's also in The Northman. Yeah, I was Yeah, he's the you... boat guy. That's in right. The Northman. Yeah. yeah, I love this guy. His voice is ridiculous. I don't think anyone could do an impersonation he, of this guy. You know who he could play in a movie? He could play Rasputin in a movie because he has. He could. Kind of he could. Also, this is an excellent pick for Van Dorn. It doesn't look like him too much. It could. Much, it but... could. You make this guy bald, I think it works. Yeah. Okay, well, that's all I had. Did you say who you would do for Van Dorn? Um, I did, Nick Offerman. Okay, Nick um, Offerman. I had one other character cast. I had Abner Weed. Okay, who's the henchman? Um, yeah, the henchman for uh, the Cromwells. Uh, I picked uh, Roy McCann. He plays the Hound in Game of Thrones. I just now realized that a lot of my picks are in Game of Thrones. I'm well, sorry. A lot of mine are from American Horror Story. Yeah, yeah, it works. It's an interesting look at like that's kind of the way our you know yeah we but, aesthetically think. But that I this could, could see work. I could see the guy that plays the Hound being like an ex wrestler type character that's driving a car around. He's a little big, but it, I think it works. All right. Well. Yeah, shall we move on? So since we've gone over the story of the chase, um, and as we said, it's about this private detective uh, in the early 1900s, I wanted Part to... Part of the fictional Van Dorn Detective Agency. Exactly. Uh, their motto is... We never give up. Never. Never. And here's yep. a description of, of uh, Van Dorn and his agency from the chase. He and his agents had prevented political assassinations, hunted down many of the West's most feared outlaws, and helped organize the country's first Secret Service agency. Now, we're going to talk about the Pinkerton Detective Agency today, which was a real-life detective agency, and that description of Van Dorn is pretty much the resume of the Pinkertons. And part of this is just that there's a lot of interesting history to the Pinkertons, but I also Very thought it'd be useful so. So. to compare and see see where Clive Cussler was taking from the history of the Pinkertons and where he was um, doing something original and different. And to aid us in this comparison, I I did a I read a book. <laughs> so this episode is we, Chris and I were joking around. It's going to be a big. Wait, it's we gonna have to be read a, books. Yeah, <laughs> this is going to be a book report episode. So the book I'm going to oh be... no, he's got it once again. Great for the visual medium, but we tune into this uh, this call today, and Connor is holding up his nice little bundle of papers uh, with his book report, like a kid home from from school with an A. <laughs> well, the book is called "Inventing the Pinkertons: Or Spies, Sleuths, Mercenaries, and Thugs," and the author is uh, S. Paul O'Hara who is a professor of history at Xavier University. And uh, let us let me just start off with this, because you mentioned that the Van, Van Dorn uh, motto is, we never give up, never. Never. Do you know what the Pinkerton motto is? Uh, isn't it something like, uh, we never sleep? 
we never sleep and their yeah, and, and their it's, logo it's even creepier yeah it's even creepier because their logo is an open eye yeah it, i mean there's something really Which menacing I, and like i'm also pretty sure that's where the term private eye came from uh i thought just private investigator but <laughs> right but but the, the, these I. private investigators were some of the most famous, and their badges all had that open eye on it. Well, part of what the Pinkertons did was um, espionage and counter-espionage. So they were an, a roaming eye for the Union during the Civil War. Uh, so it fits. Um, let me do a little, just a kind of an overview. This book, it's about the history of the Pinkerton Detective Agency, but it's, it's more so as well about, about the, the reputation of the Pinkertons and how the Pinkerton name meant very different things to different classes of people during America's Gilded Age and through the early 20th century, which is when the chase is set, you know, the, the beginning of the kind of progressive era, which is, which is when the public really began to pay attention to issues of labor exploitation. The main idea of this book, the late 19th century was a time of great change for America Immigration and industrial expansion meant that America was changing. People were heading west. The urban landscape was evolving, especially in places like Chicago. America was seeing both unprecedented wealth for its industrial elite, but also unprecedented poverty for its urban immigrant classes. The public was struggling to understand what constituted ethical labor practices, and the public, notably the media's ideas on this subject, were reflected in their views on the Pinkertons. The Pinkertons were a bit of a mirror for labor issues. Were the Pinkertons the safeguards of free labor, in addition to being cowboy detectives of the West, where they brought justice to the lawless frontier? Or were they the hired guns, mercenaries of an emerging class of robber barons and industrial elite? The answer is uh, both, but more on the neither. hired gun side. Yeah. More on neither. the hired gun side. They were more the, the 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 iron fist of the robber barons and the uh, mm-hmm. industrial elites. Yeah, they're more like um like mercenaries. Absolutely, and mercenaries, but pack packaged in a socially acceptable light or a socially acceptable way. And when but, they were uh, doing strike breaking, it wasn't as if they were even skilled detectives. They hired you know schlubs in their. You know, they they had them go out there and fight the the people on strike. They'd, they'd, they'd also turn away detectives. Like if an actual detective wanted to apply, they would tell them that we are full up, or uh, we don't. We'll, we'll we'll consider it, or we'll we'll you know we'll call you, because they weren't really after that. They were after people that they could tell what to do and have them go do it. And a lot of times they hired more or less salesmen. You'd, you'd have your people out in the field that you'd have to be your enforcers and you'd have your salesmen in, in the detective offices so that when you had some rich person come in with a problem, you could sell them on the service. Yeah, um, a, a lot of them as well. Some of them, one of the more, more famous ones I'm going to mention today was this Irish guy who was sent in to infiltrate um, you know, an Irish mining community. So, you know, Pinkerton, you can see that this is this is one of the... Uh, origins of of espionage in the United States is these private detective agencies where they take people and turn them into assets. You know, if you want information about what's going on inside of an immigrant community, you're going to get someone who is an immigrant from the same, you know, um, uh, nation that those people came from, and you're going to send them in. 
and that's what he did. Yes, but, very much like pre pre FBI, pre letter agency agency. Yeah, it was essentially a private army, and you know we have private armies today still, but but this one pertained more to a, a lot to labor, and I think it's interesting because, like I said, the Pinkerton Agency gained uh, a lot of media attention during the Progressive Era when there was a, an attempt to reform labor. Labor, um, nineteen oh six, when the the chase is set, is the year that Upton Sinclair's The Jungle came out, which chronicled, I believe, it was Latvian workers in a Chicago meat factory, their their life and mm-hmm. how miserable the work was. So I, I wanted to start off by talking about the labor movement and how Alan Pinkerton, who kind of started his life as a pro labor person ended up being one of the greatest villains in the history of, of labor in the United States. So, to begin with, when he started his detective agency, Alan Pinkerton thought he was supporting, quote, free labor. He had this idea of the hardworking American individualists, and he thought that labor unions and secret societies worked against the interests of not just industry at large, but the individual worker, that labor unions actually undercut the autonomy of the hardworking American individualists. Given his writing on the subject of secret societies and labor organizations, it seems likely that his dislike for labor unions was also influenced by his dislike for Irish people. He clearly associated Irish people with Irish politics, uh, radicalism, and anarchism. So his early support, though, of... They were, they were not a very well-liked people back in that time. No, um, not at all. Yeah. So early, in his early support of industry, when he brought the Pinkertons to working for railroad companies and express delivery companies, and then when he began to step into the role of enforcer for industry, he was not, in his mind, at least anti-labor, at least not initially. O'Hara, the author of this book, points out that later on in Alan Pinkerton's life, you know, he there are really no traces of his pro-labor sentiments. And it, by the end of his life, it pretty much become comfortable uh, with being, you know, the leader of a group of hired guns that enforce the will of the industrial elite. Let's see. Let me t- talk a little bit about where he came from. Who is Alan Pinkerton? He's. It's interesting because he does start off as this frontier lawman um not not necessarily like on the western frontier but at the time he was in the united states you know obviously it wasn't like it is today and there were a lot of social institutions that weren't developed such as uh currency you know money and spending police forces yeah, money city money government was, money was an interesting thing back then because it wasn't uh universal like one currency there were different places that would have different currencies um, and be- because and of this, have... it was easy to counterfeit. Yep. And that's how he got started. So he was born in Scotland, but he ended up in Chicago in the 1840s. At that time, it was a frontier outpost, and there was traders, and they used all different kinds of currency. And he was he he started busting counterfeiters. Uh, um, he worked as a sheriff's deputy, and then later as a special agent for the U.S. Postal Service. And he gained some notoriety as a postal agent. There's a, the New York Times actually ran a story about him in 1855, and it praised him for busting this dirty mail clerk who was stealing a ton of money. Um, and that really, you know, was the first piece of 
good media he got. I think it was the first piece of media he ever got, but it made it to the New York Times. After that, he, he started doing private security for railroad lines. This was the precursor to the Pinkerton Agency. He created an organization called the Northwest Police Agency. In Chicago at that time, the actual police force, the city police force, was more like a private army, which you could say it's mm-hmm. still, police forces still are today. Um, yeah, it's circled around back to that. <laughs> it could be used to achieve political ends. Pinkerton, in, living in Chicago, created a private patrol force called Pinkerton's Protective Patrol that worked locally within the city. But as, aside from that, most of his efforts were, had to do with railroads. The Northwest Police Agency was providing security for railroad clients and for their, the delivery services. His organization made sure that the, the, the goods on railroad lines were delivered secure and protected. And he made sure that railroad em, uh, employees weren't pocketing any money or stealing any cargo or just doing anything illegal. So he's starting off in labor here way back. You know, he's, he's keeping an eye on the employees of these railroad companies. So there was a case in Montgomery, Alabama, where he recovered a ton of money uh, from this train station owned by the Adams Express Company, and that elevated his agency's reputation. He always thrived on good media and understood that your reputation was largely a result of how the media talked about you. So I think he, I got the sense that very early on, he understood this. He kind of reminds me of Donald Trump in that way, in that like, he sees his media relationship as, as almost more important than the product itself. Is It's how people talk about him. It's uh, branding and marketing. Yeah, I mean, for sure. We'll, we'll talk about another aspect of his life that's very much related to the branding and marketing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but con- continue the book report. <laughs> okay. All right. <laughs> Chapter two. <laughs> so eventually his, <laughs> the Northwest Police Agency was renamed the Pinkerton Detective Agency. And throughout the organization's history, it's cha- it changed its name. It had some variations. I think it ended up as the Pinkerton National Detective Agency. Okay, anyways, but during the Civil War... Protection and intelligence were vital for railroads. Railroad companies were worried that their lines might be sabotaged by the South. So Pinkerton was hired by General George McClelland to gain intelligence on the South. He used his agents to collect information on troop strength in West Virginia. His efforts in the South were not incredibly successful or valuable. He wasn't that great at espionage, at running spies, Two of his agents were revealed as spies, and one of them was hung. During the Civil War, the Pinkertons were also employed in counterintelligence in Washington. They infiltrated high society groups and investigated socialites that they thought might be transmitting information to the South. And they actually, I think I remember reading a story that they found some lady that was doing that. But during the Civil War, just to give you an idea of what the agency looks like, there was never any more than 20 uh, detectives working for this organization. And following the Civil War, his reputation was debated. Some people thought his work was shoddy, that he wasn't delivering solid information, and that he jumped to conclusions or just made things up. But the majority opinion was that his work was good, and he was celebrated as you know contributing to the success of the Union. You probably have heard that Alan Pinkerton uncovered a plot to assassinate Abraham Lincoln in Baltimore, and that because yeah, of his effort, one of the things. Mm-hmm. That's, yeah, that's kind one of, of the a things he's known for. 
and that he he helped kind of like uh, uh, Lincoln pass through Baltimore undetected and he kind of thwarted this plot. Uh, he was involved in this, although following the event, again, there was some journalistic debate regarding whether there was an assassination plot or not. And eventually he did get credit for this and uh, it was beneficial for his company. So you, you can see all of his successes have have a, a little bit of uncertainty to it but he came out on top he came out as heroic and iconic as he wanted people to think he was but there was always debate but anyways it was after the civil war that the anti-labor activity really kicked into gear pinkerton already had his reputation as being a reliable enforcer for railroad barons he could protect their rail their railroads their trains he could sh make sure the workers did their jobs and they didn't hold anything up with strikes or by stealing and in the urban environment, the industrial urban environment, this is the second industrial, we're talking about the time of the second in, in, uh, industrial revolution. He was going to be hired to do the same thing, but for different industries, notably coal mining and factory work, such as steel work. He created, uh, he employed men, as I said earlier, uh, as strike breakers. They were not skilled detectives. Basically, they were just violent thugs. There were detectives, there were actual investigators who spied on unions, but in terms of strike-breaking, strike we're not talking about sophisticated work. You're talking about instigating fights with people and then beating them up, if not killing them. So there's a few significant events that the Pinkerton Detective Agency participated in, and I'm going to go over some of them now. The biggest one, I think, and this has been uh, made into a movie and I believe it was referenced in an Arthur Conan Doyle story, is their investigation of the Molly Maguires. So from 1873 to 18, through 1876, the Pinkerton Detective Agency conducted one of its most famous investigations, the case of the Molly Maguires. The Molly Maguires started overseas in Ireland, Ireland as a secret society that used intimidation and violence against landlords and bosses. As Irish people immigrated to America, so did the organization, appearing in the Pennsylvania coal mining community, where they used the same tactics of intimidation and violence in labor conflicts. There is some debate in academic communities about whether the Molly Maguires existed formally or if it was just people doing things and being attributed to the... Um, uh, Molly Maguires, or if it was just made up by landowners and mine owners to further cast, you know, labor organizations in disrepute. Uh, O'Hara, no, the was, author of could, the book I'm it, referencing, it, he seems he like seems a, fairly certain that they existed. Well, that's what I was, I was going to say. It, it, it could be a little bit of both. You know, there could have been a group that existed, but then anytime anything happened in the area or of similar activity, it could have been lumped in and blamed on the Molly Maguires. It, exactly. It could just be you know, the, the mine owners creating a, an enemy, you know, and trying to, and trying to, uh, well, anyways. Okay. Here's the story. Okay. So this guy, Frank Gowan, he's the president of the Philadelphia and Reading Railroad and the Philadelphia and Reading Coal and Iron Company. He hired the Pinker Pinkertons to come in and root out the Molly Maguires working in his organization. To do this, Alan Pinkerton had one of his Irish-born detectives, a man named James McParland, go undercover to collect intelligence. McParland was said to have infiltrated the Maguires and was even appointed as secretary within the organization. Uh, based upon his correspondence with his handler at the Pinkerton Detective Agency, McParland felt 
a bit of guilt over his role as a spy. Um, at one point, the information he gave to his handler, it seemed like his handler gave that to like mercenaries or hired killers. So he, he gave information to his spy handler. That information made its way into the hands of some of the wrong people, some of the wrong anti-labor people. And they used it to murder several um, members of the Irish mining community, uh, including the wife of a member. So he is seeing that, hey, you know what? If these Molly Maguires, uh, if they're, they may not be great, according to, you know, the, the, his employers, but, you know, he's, he doesn't want to see them get murdered. He doesn't want to see women be murdered by, you know, uh, the likes of Frank Gowan and the Philadelphia and Reading Railroad Company. He wasn't against the idea of the Molly Maguires being taken out, but he didn't want innocent people killed. Uh, and in fact, this is what made him walk away from the case eventually. Regardless, the evidence he collected led to the arrest of several members. And on June 21st, 1877, 10 convicted members of the Molly Maguires were all hung on the same day. A total of 20 were Jesus. hung. I know, isn't that? I mean, you're sending a message when you do that. In general, the press thought this was a good thing. They, cel they celebrated it as the end of, quote, the snake of Maguireism, which is kind of ironic because later on they would... I knew, there, I knew there used to be, be hangings and that, you know, the public more or less loved, you know, turning out to them, but uh, I haven't heard, like, like, ten people being hung at the same time or hanged at the same time, like, since, like, pirate times? Like, I don't, it seems... Yeah. I don't think I don't think they hung them all at the exact time because I, I was curious about that too. The way I was reading it is that they were all hung on the same day, so there was like a formality that's to still, the execution. That, that's that's still wild. Like, I I, I would I, I don't know I'm, I could be completely wrong because I'm not a, a old West historian, but I don't feel like you'd have that you know hanging that often, and if you did, I you know maybe like a couple a day. Like, you wouldn't have that many people being arrested for offenses that would require hanging. So I think that's just crazy to do all of it in one day. Well, these were Irish immigrants who had irritated, um, you know, uh, co uh, coal mining industrialists, the owners of these companies. They were going to get hung. You know, they th to say that they got a fair trial would probably be an exaggeration. Okay, so again, the, the media celebrated it. Hey, it's the end of the snake of Maguireism. And like I said, it, there's some irony to this because later on the media would be really critical of, quote, Pinkertonism. But anyways, the families of the executed people didn't think it was such a great thing, and the reports of their presence at the executions is pretty depressing stuff. Um, and, but on the ground, in the mining community, amongst workers, people saw this for what it was. You know, They were thinking, yeah, the Maguires were violent. You know, They beat people up. They they supported labor, but they were violent and, and, you know, killed people. But having your boss send in a Pinkerton detective undercover to investigate you and your co-workers, and it ends up with people getting hung, that's not so great mm -hmm. either. And there no. ended up being a lot of criticism of McParlin's testimony, people saying he lied or he exaggerated. And Frank Gowan, the guy who owned the company, who hired the Pinkertons to come in, he also testified at the trials. And afterwards, I think this is so, like, tasteless, you know, adding insult to in injury. He published his testimony in pamphlets and, you know, gave it out because he wanted 
he he wanted to come out of it looking like a hero. Hey everybody, uh, subscribe to my new zine. Exactly. There were no Irish Catholics on any of the juries, which shouldn't really be a surprise. Oh. No. But the point is that this investigation and its outcome, it really crystallizes the dual reputation of the private detective at the time. Some people thought they were intelligent investigators. Others thought they were corrupt provocateurs who were meant to stamp, stamp out pro-labor sentiment and ensure that their bosses, industry barons, m maintain complete control over their workforce. Another big event I want to talk about, two events really, was the Great Railroad Strike of 1877 and the Haymarket Square Riot of 1886. A lot of this is, um, if you're from Chicago, you're probably familiar with a lot of this. But anyways, the Great Railroad Strike of 1877, it started in 1877. <laughs> so workers... Oh, <laughs> really? Yeah, workers in West Virginia seized part of a railway line um, in show of solidarity with these workers in Baltimore and, and Ohio who were getting their wages lowered. So President Rutherford B. Hayes ca uh, called in federal troops to reopen these railroad lines in West Virginia, which they did. But in response to that, protests broke out in Cincinnati, Louisville, St. Louis, St. Louis, I should say, and Chicago. Hey, St. Louis. St. Louis. <laughs> but there's, hey, that's probably how they'd say it, like in the chase, you know? <laughs> yeah, for sure. For sure. There, there was violence, but eventually the, the U.S. Army shut it down. These strikes really spooked the urban elite they wanted to know how it happened why it happened and what they could do to prevent it from happening again so pinkerton was involved in in shutting down these strikes and in 1878 he published uh, his account of this in this uh, book called strikers communists tramps and detectives and in that he kind of put forth this anti-labor pro-industry manifesto of sorts and uh great he blamed labor unions he said that they are operating under the principles of european communism according to him it wasn't wage cuts or unsafe working conditions or seeing your friend die in the workplace it was quote no what was it it was permanent tramps and radical politics um oh this this is sort of I thought of this as sort of him declaring war. You know, at this point you have Alan Pinkerton in industry on one side of the line, and then you have labor, you know, unions and societies on the other side of it. And strikers, communists, tramps, and detectives really illustrates what they think of those other people. They think that they're radicalized immigrants bringing the worst of European politics with them into the United States. And I, I, I promise all of this will tie into the chase, at least a well, little bit. Well, that's how bit. you gotta... But, oh, no, it will, for sure. But that's also... Those are the tactics, like, you see that employed all the time. You dehumanize the people that you're working against politically so that uh, atrocities and legislation and stuff brought against them seems fine because they're less than human or they're horrible people or they're all criminals uh yeah i mean I'm... We've, we've seen that with we've seen that with uh discussions of refugees we've seen that with discussions of immigration we've seen that with uh just discussions of people on different political sides it happens again and again 
Yeah, I mean, it's in 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 terms of labor organization, there there are people who infiltrate, you know, um, unions and and workplaces where unions may, you know, pop up. This still goes on. I mean, there's still there's still for sure. Yeah, it's. It's the the Pinkerton Detective Agency has was absorbed by this organization. I think it's called like Securitas, but there's plenty of there's so many other ones. I mean, oh, that's a great name. Yeah, Pete Buttigieg worked for an organization and did shit like this. Uh, McKinsey, it was called, and he was he was involved in in all sorts of you know uh, sketchy stuff like this. I mean, it, it it happens. Yep. It's a little more refined nowadays. It's not as much as like right. Yeah, but like I said, it's the, still is the goal to make the the your opponent seem more harsh than they are, more easier to judge. So one other historical event I wanted to talk about was the Haymarket Square riot of eighteen eighty six. So on May third, eighteen eighty six, during a demonstration for an eight hour workday outside the McCormick Reaper plant in Chicago. Chicago PD fired upon a group of workers who were confronting a group of strike breakers, and four people died. The next day, outraged at this act of police violence, organizers called for another rally at the Haymarket, at Haymarket Square, which is a commercial area on the west side of Chicago. Obviously, tensions were very high. Someone, it wasn't clear exactly who, tossed a bomb into the ranks of the police. And it exploded, and seven cops died. So in response to this, Chicago PD came down hard on all known political and labor dissidents. Um, It ended up with eight anarchists being arrested with explosives materials. Um, During their trials, the testimony of a Pinkerton agent was used to secure their, their convictions. So prior to the riot, the Pinkertons had embedded an agent with various anarchists and labor groups throughout the city. This agent was brought in to testify as something of an expert witness on the subject of radicalism and labor uh, organizations in the city. And it was through this agent's testimony that the public and the court were given a glimpse into a criminal underworld of anarchism and terrorism, and, you know, uh, labor terrorist tactics, uh, which included throwing bombs and killing cops. You know, so this agent painted a picture where these where these anarchists fit in very easily. Um, mm-hmm. Consequently, the men were found guilty, and four of them were hanged. I keep saying I said hung last time. I I, I like hung or hanged. Yeah, I think we it's both hanged. <laughs> anyway, it's hanged. Hanged. <laughs> so, um, but don't worry, it, I'll edit this out too. <laughs> thanks. <laughs> he didn't. Um, so, but anyways, by later on though, in 1893. So again, this this thing started in 1886. The Haymarket Square riot. By 1893, after those four men were hanged, public opinion had shifted. And Illinois Governor John Atgold he pardoned the three remaining anarchists. I think one of them had died of natural causes by then. He pardoned the other ones that were arrested for this, and he stated that their trial was unfair, and that the Pinkertons' testimony was either a lie or an incredible exaggeration. And he identified openly, he said that the Pinkertons are the hired arm of the plutocratic elite. There are other events, plenty of other events. Um, the Homestead Strike of 1892, people may have learned about that in high school, where the Pinkertons shot it out with a group of striking steel workers employed by Andrew Carnegie. 
But the big point is, the reason I'm going over these things, is that the public reputation of the Pinkertons and the private detective in general eroded over time. By the 1890s, the image evoked by the word Pinkerton was less of a daring Western lawman or a suave detective gentleman, but rather a goonish strikebreaker who was quick to violence and more than happy to lay a beat down on an immigrant who only wanted fair wages in an eight-hour workday. I want to now just I want to tie it back to the chase, and I feel like you're going to have a lot to say about this because you've read more of the Isaac Bell books. But a, a critique that that I have of the chase is that the labor component of this time in the United States is missing from the story. And that's significant because the role of private detective agencies and labor movement was big. By the 1890s and through the early 1900s, you know, sure, the progressive movement was happening, but there was still tons of inequality and oppression. And there was mainstream criticism sure. of these conditions. Journalism was changing. Magazines were becoming popular. Word was getting out. So... In terms of Isaac Bell, it seems unlikely that everyone would have greeted him with as much respect and admiration as he gets in the book. And what seems more likely to me is that the various railroad workers he comes across and bank tellers would probably be very suspicious of him and think that he was there to investigate them uh, on behalf of their employers. And one last thing before I shut up for a bit <laughs> is that... Um, <laughs> The, the Pinkertons had employed goons to break strikes throughout the U.S., including in Colorado. And just a few years before the events of the chase, there was a, a series of mining strikes in Colorado where private detective agencies were in, in, brought in. Telluride, in. right? There was one in Telluride in 1903, three years before the event of the chase. And he goes to Telluride in this story. So even though in the story only a few people know that he's a detective because he kind of goes there undercover... I feel like Kussler could have acknowledged this, maybe written something into it where he acknowledges that it could, you know, it could have doubled down on the reason why he needed to be undercover. You know, yeah. Uh, that they needed to operate kind of uh, not necessarily unknown, but like low key because of maybe public sentiment. But yeah, I mean, I, we, we briefly discussed this after the last recording, but a lot of the parallels between the two can be drawn. But the one that is interesting is that the Van Dorn Detective Agency is generally on the good side, without a doubt. The series never brings into question if they're uh, shady or corrupt or helping the wrong person. Uh, there's definitely times where they ask that, and I think that'd be a really interesting book for him to, to tackle where their client isn't the best person, maybe. The, you said that the you know the labor kind of movement is absent from the first book, and I would say that that's probably because he does address it in a follow up book. There's a, uh, several books actually that are like heavily about striking and strike breaking, and I think these books kind of follow that where they don't you you won't get a perfect picture of everything going on in the west from one book alone each book kind of tackles a little bit of a different aspect of the time period you certainly see a little bit of it in the background of other books but uh they try to have a theme so one of them one of the themes will be you know strike breaking one of the themes will be sabotaging industry one of the themes will be bank robbing one of the themes will be uh, mobsters or whatever you know it's uh, one of the books follows like uh, Black Hand. Um, 
if if you read more of them, you you kind of get a better sense of the time period. But the the one thing that is true throughout the whole thing is that he flips the script on the detective agency, whereas the Pinkertons, like you said, were enforcers for the industrial class. The Van Dorn detective agency is generally defending people and is always trying to kind of uh, upholding good morals and the law. I don't know if that's because Cussler uh, subscribed to the sensationalism that Alan Pinkerton put forward and bought into that they were the good guys and wanted to just uh, romanticize that kind of image, or if he did a deep dive and did the full understanding of everything and didn't find that a uh, corrupt detective agency would be a compelling protagonist or a compelling uh, environment for a protagonist. It might offer too many challenges, you know, to like to have a, a good detective working in a corrupt agency, but the work he's doing is good. You know, it's like keep it keep it clean, keep it neat. He's just investigating the case. Well, that's and it. that's the thing is, we talked about in the um, synopsis that the the good reputation that the Van Dorn Detective Agency has assists Isaac in his investigations. He can go places to say, "I'm a Van Dorn," and people respect him and give him more access. Uh, which would not have been the yeah. case with the Pinkertons. You would have said, hey, I'm a, I'm a Pinkerton, and people would be suspicious of you for sure. Um, They'd be suspicious, but also... that hired yeah. them. <laughs> or very afraid, very scared that this person's a psychopath and they're going to yeah, come like, shoot oh, someone. Yeah, like, oh shit, they're going to yeah. shake things up in my town. Yeah. Deadlit will be right back after a word from our sponsor. This is the Mattel Shoot and Shell Winchester, the only toy rifle that looks real enough to carry that famous Western name. It fires greeny stickum caps and safe shooting shells and ejects them. Fires greeny perforated roll caps too. And with this secret trigger, it fires fast as you can handle it. This is Mattel's Durahide holster and Fanner 50. It fires roll caps too. Holster, Fanner 50, and rifle come in Mattel's Frontier set. 550, wherever toys are sold. You can tell it's Mattel. It's swell. Are you looking to know more about your future spouse? Are you wondering what your corporate competitors are doing? looking at surveillance and gathering evidence, or looking for a missing person. Hire your specialist private detective today to reach the truth. We are Bonds 007, a leading private detective agency. We are specialized in background checks, infidelity surveillance, corporate spying, undercover investigation, car and room bugging, mobile phone and digital forensics, GPS vehicle tracking, and much more. We use the latest video surveillance technology. Call us today on 0333 or visit bonds007.co.uk. Let our eyes speak the truth to your mind. And now, back to our show. Yeah, so it, it occurred to me that uh, <laughs> the villain, the Butcher Bandit, uh, he was a pretty good villain for, for representing, like, the time period. He's... He's not. He's not newly. I, he's newly rich. He starts off poor, so I'm calling him newly rich. I wouldn't but, say newly, but yeah, he starts off poor and kind of builds up his bank with crime, though. It, it's like a weird blending of white collar and blue collar. Yeah. But uh, it's definitely. I think it's an interesting choice to make the villain high class. 
or at least, you know, now high class and a rich person and a banker. Um, cause I don't think I've ever seen that kind of a, a situation in a Western before. Most of the villains are all kind of, uh, I don't want to say poor, but, you know, down on their luck or um, struggling or some sort of ostracized class or person. So it's, yeah. it's interesting to see someone who's well off that's just doing it because they enjoy it. Well, the, it almost seems like, the, you know, there's a meta narrative in this story about the butcher bandit because he's the butcher bandit. And if you just heard that name, you would kind of think of, um, you know, like a Billy the Kid type figure, someone really, you know, filthy uh, in chaps with, you know, two pistols and riding off. But that's what the public thinks of him. That's the thing is they don't they they don't know what type of a person he is they just know how he acts what he does and uh when he hears that that's what they're calling him he at first is appalled by it but then yeah he kind of leans in on it and it kind of helps because it it casts suspicion away from the type of person that he is yeah the western the western narrative you know the the of the outlaw is it's what he's he's writing that you know um but I, as a villain, you know, like again, he's he's wealthy. He has an almost psychopathic level of apathy towards working class people. You see that in the way he treats the railroad workers and in how he just murders bank tellers, you know, um, without, yep. you know, any consideration. Uh, he's well connected. He uses his influence to escape accountability time after time. What it occurred to me is after reading this book is that the butcher bandit, he probably would have had a Pinkerton employed underneath him at this time. He probably would have hired a Pinkerton to, yeah. to like his, help his, him. Uh, yeah, his, a Pinkerton would have been his, his chauffeur guy, the, the wrestler guy that he has. Yeah, but that's a good... And I thought that kind of... That was a you know historically you know a motivated uh, characterization as well. He has this sort of Irish henchman who... who you know, it's not, it's not, I don't take it as, as a sweeping characterization of Irish immigrants at the time, but this guy is very, very, uh, like working class. He looks like he's actually a wrestler. He yep. seems like he comes from very, very tough stock. I'll put it that way. But yeah, let me, I had a question. So be, being that you're more familiar with this series, are there other detective agencies that show up at any point? Um, not to the same scale as the Van Dorns. The Van Dorns are definitely the shoot, the like the stand-in for the Pinkertons. Even though, like I said, they're the morally on the high ground. There are like minor operators in the books. Like you get the there's always the railroad police and railroad detectives, and you know that like uh, certain hotels and stuff have a a uh, resident detective. Yeah, house detective. Yeah, they have a house detective. But that's about it. Hmm. Well, I'm eager to, to read the book about the strike. And, you know, I'm, I'm not trying to be dismissive of this story or the characters. And it's it's refresh. It's you know, it's it's good to know that over time, the the struggles of this t of this historical period are represented. But, um, you know, as a standalone novel, I thought, gosh, this guy's from Chicago. Like he's this is the center of labor of the labor movement in the United States in like this is not even a component of this? Like, you got to be kidding me. Well, I think I think a lot of it can come into, like I said, if you give into the sensationalism that Alan Pinkerton um, published, it certainly paints the 
Pinkerton Detective Agency in a, in a positive light. And I feel like the so for those of the, you that aren't aware of this, Alan Pinkerton wrote books. And boy, did he write books. He wrote 17 he wrote, true crime uh, detective novels. I'm going to put true crime in parentheses. Well, I said true quotes, crime detective novel, which doesn't make any sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, but that, that's exactly what they are. Is there's, they're, they, he absolutely pitched them as the real-life accounts of cases that he had, or his detectives had been on. And that uh, he said that, they, though they may sound sensational that they are the truth and it just goes to follow the adage that the truth is always stranger than fiction or often stranger than fiction and they're absolutely definitely not truth like they're they're over sensational they're propaganda pieces they're they're meant to market and cast his detective agency in a positive light so that readers go oh this sounds like an exciting thing and oh they sound so good we need to hire them and just to sell books, like you know, make money. Yeah, he he um, he under you know, like I said, he wrote that that anti labor book about strikers and anarchists, as as well as these you know um, case books basically of, um, and I think he wrote one about the Molly Maguires as well about the cases that Pinkertons investigated, and at this time O'Hara you know points this out the the author of the book I've been mentioning that. At this time, masculinity had two popular images. One was the rugged individualist, the kind of man you might see out in the West staking his claim, and also the sophisticated gentleman, you know, the very well-mannered gentleman. Mm -hmm. He wanted to combine both of those things. And that's what Cussler does with uh, Isaac Bell. He's very much both of those. Well, things. and that's what I was gonna say is I I feel like Kessler is almost doing an homage to those novels rather than to the actual history. Yeah, um, the, the 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 book that the the Isaac Bell books themselves could be read as, you know, Van Dorn propaganda. You could read it that way. That's not what I was trying to say. You're trying to say that maybe what we're reading is the sensationalized uh, retellings of what really happened. I'm saying that Klusler, um, pref- I think he preferred to cast, since the books are come, you know, the protagonist is a member of this detective agency, and this detective agency more or less is the representation of the American Old West and the transition into the modern age. I think he was trying to cast it in a positive light. To I don't want to say I was any sort of blind patriotism, but um, you know, America's the good guys, and the detective agency is the good guys, and let's cheer for the good guys. And there's a strange optimism about it that I'm actually all for, because this is the kind of stuff I always argue about with science fiction, where we get a lot of dystopian science fiction, and everything's very dour, and there's always uh, cautionary tales of how the future's going to turn out, and a lot of it's coming true now we're very close to living in a cyberpunk dystopia ourselves and i always say that it'd be nice to have some more optimistic science fiction things to look forward to things to aspire to to inspire us and i think this is a really good way of doing that in the old west like here's here's an optimistic uh light-hearted look at what we could have been what the what the pinkertons could have been uh, what they should have been, what they could strive for, but maybe that's just me. I mean, I'm look coming at it from a biased opinion because I I really enjoy those books, but they they are certainly not. We can agree a 
representation of what the truth was. No, and and neither were Alan Pinkerton's books. No, but I, I I love that idea though, like that it's it's sort of aspirational, and um, you know, it, it, you know, thinking about Isaac Bell, I, I mean, there's plenty to dissect about him because he does come from tremendous wealth and privilege, but you know, you could do worse looking for uh, a role model. Like I could imagine, you know, reading this book when I was, uh, I don't know if I'd be reading something like this when I was like 10 years old, but say you read a book no, like this. absolutely not. Say you read a book like this in like eighth grade. Like I could see myself reading this and being like, yeah, I want to be like Isaac Bell when I grow up. You know, it's, it's, it is, he is a good protagonist and he is, you know, Well, and you nailed it, you nailed it right on the head there. Gadlet, if it's anything, it's escapist fantasy. It's you want to be the protagonist. And I think putting Isaac Bell into a good workplace with good co-workers that uphold a moral standing is much more preferable of a escapist fantasy. You know, I want to be Isaac Bell. I love his life. He's a rich banker, but doesn't choose the banker's life. He chooses the life of adventure, driving around in a bright red locomobile, stopping the bad guys with a gun hit under his hat. Like, that's much more preferable to, oh man, I've got to work in this shady organization and I'm the only good cop or you know, only good detective in it. And uh, here's my daily life of going and stopping strikes. And like I, that would be miserable. That would not be as much of a escapist like fantasy. No, no, not at all. And it's not gritty like that. It's not, it's a, it's it not. It gets gritty in other ways, but it's never, it's like I said, it's never the Van Dorns that are the gritty aspect. Well, and also he does—he doesn't have to navigate the bureaucracy of an organization because he has money. Like he just spends—he yep. just spends money, and that's how he. Well, and that's you know, and that's that's shown so many times in the book, and I love the way that they paint it. But uh, you know, he goes to the new detective the, or the new office, the field office, and they're like, "Oh, so we're going to be putting you up in this hotel?" And he's like, "No, I'm going to be staying at the nice hotel." And they're like, well, <laughs> "They approved that?" He's like, "They don't need to." I'm paying for it. <laughs> this kind of gets to like something. I, I was talking to a, f- a friend of mine about this uh, recently. We were talking about detective stories, and they were talking to me about their uh, sort of like concerns and anxieties about detective stories because they are cop stories. And should we be celebrating cops? At, you know, right now, uh, there's obviously a, a, a glaring need for police reform in this country police abuse, police inaction, uh, you know, we could not, we don't need to go on too much, but sometimes it's strange really enjoying detective stories when you're reminded that they are it is, representatives of state American, violence. It's such an American thing, too. I mean, uh, not just American. Brit, Britain has a slew of detective uh, French too. dramas and things. I re- recently um, subscribed to BritBox to watch a couple British shows and I was flipping through their catalog and it's just like uh, like 50 different cop shows that all look almost the same, very similar. And it's like, oh my God, these are all variations of the same character, it seems like, or all variations of the same theme, um, which I can't say anything. We've had how many different Law & Order series and how many different NCIS series now? And I, I mean, I, uh, I love CIA, police procedurals. CSI series. Yeah, but it, it's something that's definitely a thing in the country, and it's it. I've I've talked about this before. I always think it's really interesting. The the lead characters, the protagonists in those series, are like one of two 
two kinds of characters and the one that's more common is the one that can only get things done by breaking the rules um and i think that that's i've said it before i think it's interesting that like um in the show luther he's a, a real good cop he's a real good guy like you see it through the story that he has a very strong moral center but he's not afraid to let a dude fall to his almost death. He's not afraid to break the, the, the law to stop a lawbreaker. He's not afraid to, to beat someone into like an inch of death. And we're supposed to like that character for breaking the rules. And if you heard about something like that happening in real life, you'd be appalled. You'd be like, oh my god, that cop needs to be you know, taken to court and uh, prosecuted. You know, how could we let someone get away with doing whatever they wanted but we admire that in our police drama protagonists it's interesting uh, i don't know why and you're right especially now more than ever it's it's a touchy subject i think what um, and i've i've used this i've used this term before and you you thought it was clever but uh you know it's it's more or less copaganda it's it's trying to make the public comfortable with cops and think that they are doing the good thing always. It's it's showing what the police should be sometimes, what they could be sometimes, and it's showing, hey, look, this kind of stuff is happening and the bad guys are getting caught. You can sleep safely tonight. And I, I also think that, you know, when, when I, I was mentioning earlier, talking to a friend of mine about this anxieties, these sort of like, you know, discomfort, we, we got to talking about detectives that were more than agents of the state. So there are these people who are, they're detectives not in a professional class. And this is kind of touching back on something, and maybe we could somehow tie this into the Dadlet checklist, but when we read and talked about The Eagle Has Landed, we were talking about soldiering and soldierdom, you know, the idea of being a soldier as not a professional class, but as like, I think we use the term like an ontological category, like a philosophical thing. Like soldier is not a job. Soldier is a calling in life. It is an, an existence. <laughs> it's a state of being. It, is the, yeah. it, is, it exists on the deepest level because they have that kind of code, that soldier's code in it, where they don't, they have honor. They, they, they rescue people that need to be rescued before they, you know, kill people. And that there are some detectives who even if they work for, uh, you know, a, a corrupt organization or an evil organization, you you get the sense that they are detectives on a much, much deeper level than just it being their jobs. And I think you definitely get mm -hmm. that with Isaac Bell as well. And you see it in the way he spends money because it's like, well, he's not a detective to make money because he has money and he's not, you know, he and he's spending, yep. he's probably ending up like, he should invest in the company. You know, it's like he's, he's spending more money than he's making probably. So I, I like that about him. He is that sort of deeper, deeper philosophical detective. He's, you know, he is, he is a detective in spirit, not just in professional class. Well, I think you see that a lot in private investigator stories like Magnum PI even some of the, like the older stuff like Poirot who is like a consultant detective they are doing it because it's a calling not because they're making money off of it alone it's it's not a corruption thing it's not a they're part of an organization thing it's hey I'm good at this and I'm doing it because I'm good at this and because I like doing it 
it, but it also seems like that sent that that feeling of, of of it being a calling also entitles sometimes cops and you know police detectives to break the rules because you know they're not there to to work within the confines of bureaucracy they're there to achieve something um that they felt they feel like spiritually compelled to do and they're not going to allow yep. rules and laws to prevent them from from catching the bad guy you know they don't the, some of these you know detectives they don't think of it as like securing a conviction they think of it as catching the bad guy and catching the bad guy is a yep. more mythic and bigger job than securing a conviction would would you say that it's the hallmark of a noir detective uh yeah yeah i mean <laughs> yeah yeah i mean yeah. because a noir detective is 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 like a ghost you know they're 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 a they're a spirit moving through the world they're not someone with a badge and a gun they're they're a seeker of truth and they're they're trying to yeah yeah i i think that's that's a fair Man, connor connor have you ever have you ever heard of or read a comic book called the specter no i don't think so it's a DC comic. Um, it's gone through multiple different volumes. Some of them are good, some of them are bad. But it's it's literally what you just described. It is a specter of vengeance that will generally possess or take on the, like, a person will take on the mantle of it, and their whole job is to seek out people who have escaped justice and bring them to vengeance. Uh, and it's like a, a, a cloaked, cowled kind of a ghostly is it older pulp character what is it an older story storyline yeah yeah they, they haven't really done too much with him in modern comics there was a quick storyline where he was one of the green lantern characters uh became him and kind of did the wrong thing as the spirit of vengeance but um it's it at its core it was a very like noir kind of ghost that was literally what you talked about that's like the living embodiment of justice that would go and hunt down criminals and kind of treat them to like an eye for an eye justice so like if they were someone who like shot people then they would get shot or if they were someone that like uh strangled people then they somehow ended up like tripping and getting hung or something um it was always like something that was like poetic justice but this is off topic entirely but it is still on the topic of like pulp noir characters and i like i said at the beginning of the first episode i think that isaac bell is a noir character in the old west hold on sorry i heard something weird, weird noise um i he's, oh the spirit of vengeance is upon you he he, he yeah oh god I, I haven't done anything leave me alone but um i think he is <laughs> rather pleasant though and he has some self-restraint, and he's charming. Yeah, he's, he's a little a, bit of that. He's a little that gentleman yeah. thief kind of vibe, but as a a good guy. Yeah, he he lacks a certain. Uh, I, I don't. I, it's not grittiness. The word I'm looking for. A lot of private detectives are kind of um, hard boiled. Well, hard boiled, but they're like. I recently watched The French Connection for the first time. That's a good movie. Yeah, Popeye Doyle the Gene Hackman character is like he lives in filth he's always eating like junk food and he drinks all the time like he's he's kind and of that's, a... that's common of a lot of uh, detectives in that kind of genre like um, Philip Marlowe is kind of a schlubby kind of 
uh, not down on his luck, but like not very um, well kept. Uh, n there's not a lot of splendor in their lives. Um, and I could I could say the same for several other noir characters. But Isaac Bell's they, not they, like they that don't... at all. No, he's not. He's always well clean cut. He's always dressed well. Even uh, even when he's like going out undercover, he still somehow dresses well. Yeah, yeah. That's that's why he has the charisma and the sort of higher calling, but he, he visually to me he doesn't Oh, so so Connor, are you saying that visually and lifestyle he's more of would you say a spy? You know, like they dress really well all the time. They have a a, a sense of class and a, an air of sophistication to them. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. So you're saying Isaac Bell is a spy character, like a spy protagonist. I'd say he a, traditionally he in, has in more in a noir in common, agency, yeah. in a noir agency that is in the old west. Well, he's a private detective. So he is like part spy, you know, like he, especially if we hold to what you were just talking about the Pinkertons doing. Yeah. I mean, to me that, that seems, even though it wasn't very successful, like the quality of information that the Pinkertons collected in the civil war wasn't like considered rock solid or like game changing. Um, it sounded like very like, sophisticated work kind of you know you're infiltrating like high society and getting to know people and and you're you're doing counterintelligence you're trying to find out who's giving information to the enemy that was to me and that's exactly what happened in the chase and on both sides though you you saw that with isaac um getting into new locales and getting to know the people getting to know uh what's been going on and but you also see that with margaret the butcher bandit's sister because she goes undercover and an, under an alias and becomes a femme fatale which once again is more of a noir type thing but could also be a spy because she's spying on the van doren detective agency and she also goes in and spies on telluride and sets up some of the the stuff there uh yeah for so, sure yeah yeah there's a lot of of spy work in in the in that book and in the following books one of the books is literally called the spy um well yeah i don't know I, I i'm still toying around with that that the fact that this book is both a western and a noir and a spy novel it, it, it's to me it's a lot of it has to do with the location because you have these moments where they're out in the middle of nowhere in the southwest um but then you have moments where they're in they're out in the west but they're in more developed areas like the city of denver yeah, big city. so there's a there's an opportunity for the genre um atmosphere to to shift in different directions here you know i wouldn't expect a whole lot of spy stuff to go on in bisbee arizona that which would you know it, it is a setting in this but in denver it does seem like there's enough big hotels and you know fancy restaurants and in san francisco as well where you could have more of that kind of sophisticated espionage elements i mean yeah when he when he uh, at the beginning is in denver he rides his motorcycle somewhere i think to 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 spy on um margaret 
and he like hides it in a golf course. He like tucks it away and kind of like conceals it. And I, I remember thinking like, this is like a spy scene, you know, like this is a, this yep. is, yeah. Uh, and, and even the scene where was it Red Kelly is hired to kill him. And that the scene where he comes back to his room and just senses something is off and opens the door to his suite feels like the scene in a like a, a spy novel Bond. where the spy just had the spy just had a great night of poker ha, uh, smooched a lady and he's stepping into his hotel room to get garroted by a, a counter agent uh, that has been hiding away in his room. You know? Yeah, very very James Bond kind of scene there. I mean, yeah. We and like I said, we're we we'll have to do a Bond book in the future. Uh, I I I've been enjoying some spy novels recently. Actually, I've been reading this kind of Lovecraftian spy series by this author Caitlin Kiernan. That it's it's good. It's really good. But the thing about so the, the Bond spy books are like those are adventure kind of espionage stories. A lot of other ones eh. like John Le Carre ones like you you're like listening to coded conversations and you don't get the correct information. Like you don't know that much. Like so much of spy novels and spy stories is like the reader, I think trying to figure out what's going on. And it's like the writer is like being vague about things. I don't know. I just noticed that that's that's how it should be. No, but that's, 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 that's a good spy novel because it gives you the, an element of, um, I think something that's essential to spy novels, but also just a great quality in books in general, mm-hmm. is a sense of paranoia. Uh, that you you don't know what's going on and you're questioning everything. It's true of really good spy stories because they, especially the ones where, like where they're questioning who they're working for or they're questioning who they're talking to. Uh, they've got uh, a person that they're supposed to be defending, and then it comes into question if they're doing the right thing if the person they're defending is a double agent like that that that's uh i think an essential quality to to spy craft and spy novels and you don't get too much of it in bond i mean i will always hold that the only two worthwhile bond stories that you can uh read or see on film are casino royale and from russia with love i think those are true spy craft and a lot of the rest of it is just adventure yeah, I, um, yeah. I took a spy thriller course in college. If you can believe it, they had that in the English department, which actually makes sense. And, and well, the, the we read one Bond book, and it was um, from Russia with Love. Actually, my professor, this guy, Professor Oliver Buckton, wrote. He's like a Bond scholar. He's like the preeminent Bond scholar. I think he's published he's published at least one book about Bond so far, and I think he wrote. A biography of Ian Fleming as well. Um, Interesting. Yeah, yeah. And I took a I took his course as an undergraduate, and then I took a course with him as a grad student on Hitchcock in the novel, and that was interesting because we read um, Secret Agent, Joseph Conrad novel, which I kind of I was thinking about when we were talking about the Pinkertons because the Secret Agent is about an anarchist group, and um, you know about a. Uh, it's you know the similar kind of secret society type of environment um but anyways i'm interested in reading some more spy fiction like i said the one i'm reading now is sort of a lovecraftian thing i'm on to the second book and th- that quality i was just talking about where you don't really know what's going on like i could use a little less of that in this book 
because I have no clue what's going on. It's just like... Oh, is it hard to follow? It's like, she met with the, the carrier from X, you, you know, like, and 30 years ago, they would have met in Paris, but not anymore. And it's like, am I supposed to understand why that would have happened? Or what, you know, like, it, but um, it's called the Tinfoil Dossier Series. The first book was really good. This it's book a good is... Name. Yeah, this the first book is called Agents of Dreamland. And the second one is called Black Helicopters. Um, it's pretty good. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I'll have, to, I'll have to touch back with you on that later. I might I might look into those. But, um, it's interesting our conversation has veered into spy stories. But it's fine, because I, I, I still stand by that the, one of the three cornerstones of the Isaac Bell series is spy stories. <laughs> what are the so, other? So Western Noir Spy. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, Western Noir and Spy. I, I think... You, I don't think you can take the one of those three elements out of an Isaac Bell novel and have it be an Isaac Bell novel. All right, I'm going to ask some very um, sixth grade questions now, okay? <laughs> who, okay would, sure. who would win in a fight, Sherlock Holmes or Isaac Bell? Uh, Sherlock Holmes. Okay, he's pretty certain about that. I would probably say Sherlock Holmes, yeah. But he also studies, like, ridiculous things about, like, fighting styles and things that I don't think Isaac Bell's... Right up. Isaac Isaac Bell's scrappy. He can he can fight. He I think he's a trained fencer, um and and he's like a, a pretty good street fighter, but I don't know. I, I feel like I feel like Holmes has the technical side of it that he could go for like some pressure points and shit that would put Bell out of out of activity. Uh, I would you know, I would be inclined to say Sherlock Holmes too because he seems like he's very intelligent in everything he does, like even like his physical, you know, fighting and tactical, you know, uh, styles but Isaac Bell is described as being kind of like rugged like I don't I, I it's easier f- for me to see Isaac Bell as like scrapping like he looks like he you know he, or I can imagine he can knock someone out Sherlock Holmes doesn't look like that but the character is written that he he is he could do that um, which I guess makes him more dangerous you know you want to you don't want to look yeah. like you're looking you don't want to look like you know how to fight because then someone is going to try and fight you get a kick out of it and you want to look <laughs> like nothing you want to be like a spy you want to be invisible yeah 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 yeah. who's a better detective easy sherlock holmes he's a mary sue <laughs> well i didn't know what else to talk about with the chase and pinkertons yeah i mean we've pretty much covered it it's an interesting topic for sure and it's it's something that i i think most people have heard of the pinkertons if not you know know a little bit about what they were about but i don't think many know like the true story of them yeah and i I only went over a few events there i mean i didn't really give like a history of them if you want to do that i would you know there's plenty of books out there about it but you know the big takeaway I, i i i got from the book again is that alan pinkerton really understood the role of media in a in the success of a of a business and he's yeah he was a businessman yeah and he he first and foremost exactly and he curried favor with a very exclusive clientele made a ton of money off of it it was just it's his participation sometimes i think you know when we think about history you're thinking about like he was at he was there at this point in history you know he he just happened to be around during the labor movement it's like he influenced history himself he was not just a, a, a participant he was not an observer he didn't dip his toe in he was shaping history and I think he understood that as well and, and wanted to be remembered, you know, as a sort of a reputable organization. But by the end of his life and his children were taking care of the company by the end of his life, 
you know, it was clear what the Pinker, Pinkertons were doing and who they were. And in fact, I think there was the Anti-Pinkerton Act sometime in the 1890s that limited the U.S. government's ability to offer contracts to the Pinkertons. Because when the Pinkerton Agency first started, you know, I think there was the Department of Justice, but they had money to basically contract out for services because they didn't have the infrastructure. It wasn't like the FBI. It's not like they had the FBI, the NSA. Um, like I said, they, they didn't have any of the lettered agencies, and I don't think they re- – like the Secret Service – either didn't exist yet or was just getting started so yeah there's there and they certainly didn't have the communication infrastructure to uh have like police agencies collaborating and working together there wasn't like a a nationwide database for criminals there wasn't a nationwide fingerprint catalog like there, there wasn't all this easy way for you know cities to work together on cases and things no, no, and for not for a while too. I think it, like a VICAP yeah. was a. Uh, I took it. You know, speaking of all the college courses I've taken, I gosh, I my undergraduate experience was so incredible. Like I, I wish I could go back. I, I took a, a summer course on serial homicide. It was in the criminal justice department, and I, it, it contributed nothing to any of my degrees. I was just like, I want to take this class. You can just, you can just, you can just take a piece of that. Like you don't have to be in a pre like there weren't any prerequisites for that course you could just jump right in no you could just take it yeah interesting um and and we learned about vicap the violent criminal apprehension program which was you know like a database it was a way to share information and you know and 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 so you could connect crimes and anyways do you want to talk about what we've got on the horizon for the podcast yeah i mean you and i were talking about it um, we did we did a little bit of a poll on the Instagram and social medias, and it didn't really. The people were wrong. How um, oh, don't uh, now we're gonna get now the we're gonna get emails <laughs> attacking our fan base like that. Yeah. Uh, the customer's always wrong. Um, Speaking of serial homicide, I think that's that's what uh, Ted Bundy said after he was convicted. He he said, "The jury was wrong." Oh yeah 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 yeah. Of course you you're gonna say that, um, but. We were looking at Rainbow Six, and it's just, I don't know, we're not feeling it. It's pretty long. So something that I was going to say we were going to hold back for like an anniversary piece, I think it feels right to do it right now. I think we're going to do Hunt for the Red October next. I think that's going to be our next big book venture. Primo dad. may do a couple of, yeah, absolutely. Um, and a great movie. So we might be, maybe we can discuss that too. Maybe we'll do a, 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 a secret episode uh that people can get access to somehow that'll maybe be us riffing on the movie or doing a commentary or something yeah we want to sort of sharpen our knives and do a recap of all the dadlet checklist items we've gone over so far we've expanded our original checklist we've added to it quite a bit we've tailored some of them a little bit differently framed some a little bit differently and so we'd love to do an episode just tying down what is on the checklist and talking about examples of them so that that's coming up also, we'll, pro- we'll probably end up doing a short story somewhere in there just to hold you guys over until we get done reading yeah. uh, Hunt for the Red October. And, but Hunt for the Red October, that way it will be our greatest performance yet. Yeah, yeah. And we, and we, and we finally get to do the checklist item, Submarine. Yeah. Um, submarine, helicopter, boat, planes... 
We'll see what else is in there. Well, I know those are. Yeah. Um, secondary pilot character. I think we're gonna have to add that. Yeah, 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 yeah. We'll, we'll get there. We'll get there. There's a um, there's a, there's a whole episode for it, Connor. Don't get excited. <laughs> but um, yeah, we'll talk about that. I'm sure we'll have some other things. Probably do another scatter shot in here somewhere. Also, I have some news before we before we sign off. Okay. When we did our Reacher episodes, um, hold on. Did we already discuss this? That we we recorded our episodes and thought that. Um, no, but did we announce about what season two is going to be? Oh, I don't think we talked about this yet. I'll have to go back and check. If, if we did, we can edit this out. Well, we were wrong. We we said it was going to be about one thing, and it's not. Right. No, but I don't. I, th- I don't. I don't know if we actually announced yeah. that of which book it is. I think no. we might have in one of our episodes mentioned it because uh, I got very excited. But uh, season two has been announced, and it's going to be based on the book Bad Luck and Trouble which is my personal favorite Reacher novel. So I'm very excited. Um, and Connor, are you going to try to read it before the season drops, or are you just going to jump into the season blind? No, I, I'll read it before the season. I think we got plenty of time. Um, you know, I don't, I, don't, yeah. I don't even know if they've started filming it yet. I follow Alan Richson on Instagram, and I, I may have mentioned this before. Oh, he's wild. He's a, my dude is a poster. Um he, yeah. he he's he does these like bible talks and i've listened to some of them and you know i, I he's not preachy you know like obviously religion is very important to him and he's no he's reacher not preacher right uh he's he's uh christian i don't know what de- denomination he is but you know he he is a still has a fairly like liberal politics and social views um you know, he was recently commenting on Roe vs. Wade, which, you know, by the time, as we're, we're recording this, it was overturned a few days ago. And he was basically saying, he's like, yeah, this is not a good thing. And you'd think that if someone who's like vocally, you know, uh, Christian wouldn't say that, but he had some interesting things to say about the subject. Um, yeah, I like him. Um, I follow, this is all just to say I follow him and I, I gather he's working on different projects. He's, he's in Fast and, the next Fast and the Furious movie. Wait, what? Well, I don't even know if that is that movie moving forward. I heard it had production issues or issue with uh, like the director or something. Oh. Well, it'd be a real shame if they didn't make Fast and the Furious Nine or whatever it is. Uh, it's ten now, ten. and it's gonna be a two-parter. It's ten part one and ten part two. You know, I need maybe I just need to catch up on those things. I, 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 I you know, I was. I, I recommend it. I have been holding it off for so long, and I finally did the other. Like a few weeks ago, a friend and I marathoned the last few, and some of it's real bad, but some of it's real good. I have this this uh, men's adventure book series that's about these uh, truck drivers. They're like retired special forces truck drivers who you know, uh, you know run into the mafia and Satanists and bikers and stuff. It's kind of a good series. It just com- comes to mind now that we're talking about. That that could be a pretty good dad lit truck. I think trucking is a, a a pretty a thing that's pretty respected by dads. Yeah, and you know, there's a whole like trucking literature community. I was when I lived in Colorado, I would go to this uh, truck stop called the Tomahawk Truck Stop, and you know, get like a hot dog because I'd, I'd be driving around for work, and so I'd gas up there, and it had like a little truck trucker diner that had like these food specials. So I'd be like. $10 all you can eat spaghetti and meatballs and there was like a really kind of old like motel attached to it 
and I just thought it was interesting. I'm like, you know, these there's like a whole trucker kind of subculture, and there was always like a, For a sure. book stand there that that had these like r- a really odd selection of books, like a lot of Star Trek novelizations, some dad lit stuff. Tech war. Yeah. Tech war. <laughs> tech war. Yeah. No, that's the sort of stuff that was there. And um, it was interesting because it was an independent truck stop. Uh, I've been to a ton of Loves. That's a type of truck stop stop uh, we have out here. I think it's in multiple states. I'm pretty sure it is. But Loves has, you know, weird DVDs and stuff too. But when you go to these like independent truck stops, you, you see some weird, weird stuff. Um, there's like trucker magazines. Uh, maybe we can... uh, you got to get a picture of some of this stuff and post it on the, the Instagram. Yeah. I'll, you know, speaking of labor unions and stuff, I, I, there's this uh, writer, Harry Cruz. Oh, no, you're finally unionizing on me. Uh, I mean, <laughs> that'd be some. I think we need to have more than one member. <laughs> um, we, but uh, anyways, there's a good there's a good nonfiction article by this writer, Harry Cruz, about uh, truckers and trucker unions. Maybe I'll post that to uh, to our Instagram page. Maybe I'll post a picture of my dumb mustache. But yeah, our Instagram page is at Dadlit Podcast. Right? Am I saying that right? That's Connor, right. did I just screw everything up? At, Am I kicked out of the union? Yeah, you're out. <laughs> at Dadlit Podcast. You can also send us an email if you want to get a hold of us at dadlitpodcast at gmail.com. Yes, indeed. Those places. I think this is a good place to call it. Uh, thank you all for listening to us squawk yet again. Hopefully you guys found this bit of history interesting. I know I did. Thank you, Connor, for the book report. Uh, but seriously, you know, we, we're, we're still a small podcast and we do all of our own research, which is to say Connor does all of our research. It's a lot of work, so I just, you know, thank you for bringing this to us. All right, take it easy, y'all. Have a good night, everybody. Okay. Crinkly bag, crinkly bag, crinkly bag. <laughs> okay. Get out of here. Just don't ask questions.